pray. Have for us. Good morning. Uh, my name is Kevin Newsom. I am the worship and discipleship pastor here. Uh, Craig, our senior pastor, is in Latvia. Uh, so it's my privilege to be able to uh, preach to you today. Uh, he has already preached. I'm not sure how that went, but it is over and done with. You don't know? Okay. We don't know. We don't get the updates, but that's okay. I felt compelled here today to um, share with you the message that I shared uh, in Scotland. Uh, so a few of you may have heard this before. If you will turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7. And we're going to be deviating from Mark here today. Football season is here. Everybody excited about that? It's a big deal. It's a big deal, especially around, around here in this part of the country in the south. Uh, and even now there, there are people here in this room that are wearing team logos and team colors. Right? It can be vicious. And by the way, congratulations. I know that at least five uh, teams are represented here by uh, people who support those schools. Congratulations to the two that actually won. The other three of us are going to just so you know, there's always next year, right? <laughs> but it can be vicious. There are more arguments and more fights over this than anything else probably in our country. Friendships have been lost. Married couples have had to seek counseling. That's the way it goes around here. Sports have a different effect on everybody. Some people get really into it. Some of you, you're nodding and laughing because you know it's true. Some people get caught up in the height. They sit on the edge of the seats. They wear the lucky socks, sit in their lucky chair, yell at the referees on the TV screen like they can actually hear them. And there are some of you that are just shaking your heads because you just don't get it. You don't understand why it's such a big deal. You don't care about sports, and you'd rather go read a book or do something else. I can go either way, so it really doesn't matter. When people are faced with sports, they react in different ways. When people are faced with the gospel of Jesus Christ, they react in different ways. Everyone reacts in three very specific ways, I do believe. I believe Scripture bears this out. And it's not just a game, because if we get this wrong, if we get this wrong, eternity is at stake. The message of Christ pierces our hearts in ways that evokes emotions much stronger than anything any college football game could do. For some people, it convicts them and makes them face their brokenness. For some people, it inspires them and makes them want to become better versions of themselves. I'm not used to having a choir behind me, by the way. So don't think I'm ignoring you. I know you're back there. I just don't want to, I, I just want to pretend you're not. So we're just going to do that. For some people, the gospel enrages them and angers them. And it makes them want to lash out at whoever is bearing this message of the gospel. And maybe you're angry today. Maybe you're here and you're angry for whatever reason. Maybe, uh, you, you've, uh, maybe you've already begun to turn, tune this message out. You don't want to be here. If that's you, I want to ask you to do something for me. I want you to give me about 40 minutes of your time to tell you why the message of Jesus Christ convicted so many of us in this room to give our lives to him and why I and the other pastors at this church are so inspired by it that we have chosen willingly to give our entire lives and make the gospel are the centerpiece of who we are. I want to tell you why that is. So if you're angry, just give me a few minutes. We're going to read from John chapter 7, beginning with verse 40. If you will, uh, if you are able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Verses 40 through 44 says this, some of the people therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David 
and from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them want to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you do. We thank you for the power of your word, God, and we know that the gospel demands a response. We know that the gospel uh, demands reactions, God, and I know that everybody in here is going to have some sort of reaction to the message of the gospel here today, God. I just pray that you would give them the courage to do what you have told them to do and to respond in the way that you are leading them to respond so that everyone in this room might leave here today made better by the message of the gospel. In the name I pray, amen. You may be seated. First of all, I want to talk about the gospel enrages. The gospel enrages. And our focal passage, verses 41 through 42, first of all, I wanted to get this out of the way, reveals that there was some extreme skepticism over who Jesus was, and it was misguided skepticism because some of these people didn't really know the background of Jesus. All they knew is he was from Nazareth. They didn't know that he had come from Bethlehem. And so it's misguided skepticism. But when we look at verse 44, we begin to see that the crowd wanted to seize Jesus. In fact, it doesn't take long. You don't have to read much of the scriptures to see that Jesus angers a whole lot of people. Specifically, the religious leaders. They plotted to murder him because of his message. And there are, there are a few reasons for this, I believe. A few reasons that they were sparked to, to pursue this drastic uh, method of getting rid of Jesus. But I think it mostly can boil down to three things. Glory, power, and worldview. In regards to glory, Jesus never took credit for anything he did as a human being. Okay, So that was revolutionary to them. It was a divinity in him that received the credit as the Son of God. The glory belongs to God alone. We see this just a few verses earlier, verse 28. And then Jesus cried out in the temple teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself. But he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him. There you go again. And no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So we see that Jesus did not take the glory for himself, but at the same time, he took the glory away from the religious leader, religious leaders. Glory made them feel important. It satisfied the pride within them. Without the glory, they were no more important than anyone else. The second issue they might have had was power. The religious leaders craved power. Having a deeper understanding of scriptures, they became uh, the gatekeepers of scriptural truths. So forgiveness, condemnation, restoration were all controlled by them because nobody understood the scriptures like they did. But when Jesus begins to speak the mysteries of the scriptures in ways that they could not even understand, He won the admiration of the crowd and he took that power from them because suddenly, suddenly, according to Jesus, condemnation is guaranteed for everyone, but forgiveness and restoration is free to all. Third reason that might have angered them was Jesus challenged the very core beliefs that made up their worldview. You see, they believed in the strict, strict hierarchy of, of the temple system, and Jesus was bypassing all of that. He was bypassing their systems. He was forgiving sins without the need of having a sacrifice. He was healing people on the Sabbath. He was eating and socializing with outcasts, people that, that might have been considered unclean. 
He didn't fit the mold of their rules, and it shook their very foundations. It penetrated the heart of their insecurities, and they reached out with anger to the point of plotting murder, violating, get this, violating some of the very commandments that they claim to idolize. Today, the message of Christ continues to anger people for these very same reasons. People are angry because they've lost the glory. If God receives the glory, then what glory is left for us? We are incredibly prideful people when we do something clever or heroic. We want people to notice. We want people to point and say, there he is. There she is. The most intelligent, the most bravest, the most amazing person I know. That's what we want. We want people to say that about us. So when Jesus Christ comes in and says, all glory, all honor, belongs to the Lord, we start to feel left, up, left out and forgotten. We look up to heaven and we cry out, what about me? Do you even see me here? So we cross our arms, we grow hard, we grow angry, and we grow bitter. Maybe that's you here today. Maybe at one point you tried Jesus and you just felt left out or left behind. Maybe you want all the wonderful things you've heard about forgiveness and salvation, but you're just not sure Jesus cares enough to see you. If that's you, I want you to know that he does see you and he does care. Stay with me a little longer. I want to prove it to you. People are angry because they've lost power. They've lost the glory. They've lost the power. We want to control our own lives. We want to control our own destinies. We don't want anyone to tell us who we are or how to live. We tried, uh, we're tired of other people's rules for holiness. We're tired of the requirements we're supposed to, ref- to fill uh, in order to be a religious person. Because so many churches and so many religious leaders have failed to represent the truth of the gospel and people are angry because they think God wants to take away their freedom. Maybe that's you here today. Maybe what if, uh, but what, what if I told you that Jesus didn't come to take away your freedom? He didn't come to give you more rules to live by. He came to give you true freedom and to help you learn how to live the way you were created to live. Stay with me a little longer. I want to try to prove it to you. People are angry today. Maybe you're angry today because the gospel of Jesus doesn't fit with their worldviews. If a God is a loving God, how could he send someone to hell? If God is a good God, how could he allow so much evil in the world? Maybe that's you here today. Maybe at some point in your life you endured some horrible heartache and you've never been able to reconcile what you felt in that moment with a God who claimed to love you. If that's you here today, if you'll stay with me a little longer, I want to show you that Jesus, is, Jesus Christ's version of the world is a world worth living in if we'd let him take control of our world. The gospel enrages. The gospel angers people who hear it working backwards in our scriptures. In our scripture here, I started with verse 44. I'm going to go backwards here. Second thing I want to look at is the gospel inspires. The gospel inspires. We see this in verse 41. People are saying this is the Christ. This meant something different to the people of of this day than it means to us. 
We have equated the words of Christ, the, the, the actual word Christ and the word Messiah with Jesus specifically and the message of, God, of the gospel as passed down by the New Testament. We see it through that lens. But at this time, at the time of, this, of the writing of this and the time of these events, they didn't have that knowledge. They didn't have the New Testament. They didn't know who the Christ was. All they had to go on were the prophecies they found in the Old Testament. They were still looking for the Christ, and they didn't have the tools we have today to find him. So their concept of Christ, their idea of what this word meant and who they were looking for, is different than the Christ that we know, the Christ that we associate with the gospel that we have printed for us. The words meant anointed one of God and coming king. And, and the concept of the Messiah developed fully for them during the time of the exile. And, and, and to really grasp what's going on, I want to walk you through what happened during that time. In 931 B.C., Israel split into a northern kingdom that called themselves Israel and a southern kingdom called themselves Judah. 200 years later, the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians and all the people there went into captivity. Southern Kingdom's problems started around 610 B.C. when Egypt imprisoned their king and imposed their influence over Judah and set up their own puppet king. Then Babylon comes onto the scene and they beat back Egypt, destroying the Assyrians. And around 600 B.C. they take uh, direct control over Jerusalem and all the people there in captivity. And the people in Judah are then taken into captivity. And so both the northern and southern kingdoms are in captivity. Babylon control falls to the Persians. Persian control falls to the Greeks. Greek control falls to the Romans. And at the time of this passage here, it has been over 600 years since the Jews were truly able to call themselves free. With one exception, there was an 80-year period where a guerrilla war, a 20-year guerrilla war, led to a, a very tense political freedom that they had that fell apart after a mere 80 years. They had not known true freedom. They had not known true security. 600 years. So the Christ, the Messiah, the person they were looking for, this chosen one of God, was to be the deliverer and the king of Israel, who was someone that was supposed to unite the people to free them from this revolving door of oppression, to give them independence and security as a nation, and help them to become what God promised Abraham that they should be. That's what they wanted. That's who the Christ was that they were looking for. So when they say, this is the Christ, that's what they mean. This very idea of Christ inspired people to become better versions of themselves even then. It gave them hope. It gave them confidence. And it gave them courage. And everywhere Jesus went, people found themselves inspired in such a way that they believed him to be that Christ that they've been looking for for 600 years. The idea of Christ that uh, can be inspirational to many people, regardless of what you believe, it can make us want to become better humans and it fills us with a hope and a confidence and courage. You don't believe me? Let's take, a, let's take an example. Let's look at Christmas. 
Christmas is, is this holiday that's just so full of so much hope, so much expectation. But more and more we see a lot of secularization happening to it. And if you, if you secularize, if we take for one moment, we can pull Christ completely out of Christmas and we completely secularize it. It is still an inspirational holiday inspired by an idea of coming hope. If you completely secularize it, it is still a hope-filled holiday because the idea of Christ still lingers there. But when you take Jesus out, there may be joy and inspiration for a time, but the back end of that, the back end of that, there's an emptiness and a hollowness that people can't explain. Christians can carry that hope from Christmas. We know something different. We can carry that hope from Christmas throughout the year. It propels us forward. We go all the way to Easter. It propels us forward, and we keep going. We keep going because the hope is, is, is sustainable, because it's real to us. It's because the mere idea of something can never change lives. It's the truth, the reality behind the idea that changes lives. Let me give you some realities associated with Christ. Twelve men, twelve men, eleven if you want to take out Judas, ran away in cowardice when Jesus was arrested and then later spent their entire lives proclaiming loudly that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. They were beaten, they were tortured, they were ruined, they were executed because of this message. A good man might die for a good story and a good cause. When all of these men do it, men who ran away, then we need to pay attention and consider whether or not their cause is truthful. But if these men don't convince you, then consider this. Acts 1 tells us that Jesus appeared to many people over a 40-day period. And when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we get a number. We get a number for one of those days. We get a number that Jesus appeared to 500 believers at one time. These believers, these disciples, were so inspired, not by an idea, but by the truth, by the reality of sin, the reality of the cross, and the reality of the resurrection, that immediately after these events, these cowardly fishermen, let that sink into your head, fishermen who ran away, began to preach so boldly that Thousands of people believed. A good man might die for a good story and a good idea, but the truth inspires people to change their lives, change their families, change their cultures, change the world. The ripple effect of Jesus' resurrection shook the world so deeply that it's still felt today. No dictator, no tyrant, no murderer, no politician, no power on earth could and ever will stop it. Every life that it touches is changed forever. Only something true, only something supernatural could do that. The message of Christ is inspirational because the message of Christ is truth. When we look into the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ, suddenly we realize that there's more to life than the one we live. We crave that life. We crave the design that God has for us. And we are inspired to seek it out with everything we are. 
Will you let this gospel inspire you to do amazing things for God? Will you let the gospel inspire you to change your world? The gospel enrages, the gospel inspires, finally the gospel convicts. Going backwards in our text one final time, we see that some people were saying that certainly, certainly he is the prophet. Certainly he is the prophet. We may be tempted to pass over the significance of this statement. That's a mistake. Don't forget that John the Baptist was only recently called the prophet. And now there are people that, these very same people, and they knew who John the Baptist, everybody knew who John the Baptist was. They knew what he was doing. They knew the types of people that were going to see him, kings, peasants, everybody. John the Baptist was calling all to repent. And now these very same people are doubting, saying maybe, maybe this is the prophet. Maybe Jesus is the prophet. John the Baptist proclaimed the wilderness for people to make way to the coming of the Lord. He cried out for people to repent of their sins and to prepare the hearts, their hearts for something amazing to come from God. He didn't show favoritism. He called upon peasants and kings to repent. He didn't go to them begging. He waited in the wilderness for them to come to him. That was the authority of his words. His message of repentance was so powerful that the people flocked to him to be baptized and to confess their sins. It convicted them. And now the power and presence of the message of Jesus has brought these people, uh, these people, these same people who had heard that convicting message of John the Baptist to a new, a new level of conviction. What they felt in the wilderness is nothing compared to what they feel in the presence of Christ. Because the power to proclaim truth, not just about God, which is what John was doing, proclaiming truth about God, but Jesus was proclaiming truth from God, and it was evident in his words. The power to forgive sins was evidence, evident in the words of Jesus. The power to bring the strong to their knees, the power to lift the weak to their feet, the power to make kings bow, the power to make peasants stand up, and the power to command the wind and the sea, and the power to silence demons was all evident in the words of Jesus. Because Christ forced people to come face to face with their imperfections and their sin and the power of God. Not just the concept of sin and forgiveness, but the reality of sin and the necessity of a Savior. And when they heard the words of Jesus, they didn't just see their sin, but they also saw for the first time in their lives what forgiveness looked like. I want to tell you what that looks like today. The reality of sin is that it is like a genetically transmitted disease. We all have it. We can't get rid of it. Rid of it. There's no one perfect, and there's nothing we could ever do to accomplish perfection. Sin separates us from God because uh, sin is the opposite of holiness. Since God is perfectly holy, we cannot come into his presence no more than the shadow can come into the sunlight. We will never measure up. We will never be good enough. We will never be able to keep all the rules. We will always mess up. And deep down, we know we don't deserve the kind of forgiveness that Christ wants to give us. 
We are in a desperate, deplorable state. The world reeks of it. Sinful people do sinful things. Broken people break other people. Unholiness wants to create more unholiness. The world is so infected by our sin that we've forgotten that we are the cause of all this misery. But what do we do? We shake our fist at God. We cry out for Him to do something. Here's the revolutionary thing. He did. He did do something. What is the cure for sin? A perfect substitute that can take the blame of sin upon himself. What is the cure for brokenness? A perfect substitute that was broken and crucified in our place. How does God destroy evil? By allowing the greatest evils of the world to kill and destroy his own son. And then raising him from the dead. We want it over. We want it fixed. But God imposes his holiness upon the world. If God imposes his holiness upon the world, then everything that contains the shadows of sin would be destroyed, like the sun destroys the darkness. We were in Scotland. We got a chance to meet uh, Ian Leach. Did I say his name right? Yeah, good, good, good. Uh, we partner with a, a, a group called the, the Herald's Trust when we go over there and we work with them. Ian Leach is one of the founders of that. We were able to he, uh, take time and he spoke to the team a little while and he put it this way. He told us a story. Uh, he was in a classroom teaching, had a smug student uh, talking about the problem of evil and the smug student said, why can't God just remove it all right now? Why can't God destroy evil right now? So Ian, you know, calmly uh, approach you and say, let me, um, let, me, let me just clarify what you're saying. You want God to remove all evil right now instantly? Yes. So if God were to say at midnight tonight, he's going to snap his fingers and all evil in the world is going to be gone, right? That's right. Let me ask you a question, Ian said. If God destroys all evil at midnight, to midnight tonight, will you still be here at 1201? Of course, all his students in the classroom, they just, they loved that. They started laughing, just shaking their head. Not a chance, they said. Not a chance. Would you, would you still be here at 1201? What we perceive as God's slowness is in reality God's mercy. What we perceive as God being uncaring is in reality because he cares more than we can imagine. Not just for the good people, but for the bad people too. God is not the problem. We're the problem. And once we realize that, we can't help but just see how much he loves us anyway. It's evident because it's real. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Yes, 
It hurts sometimes. But who, who would you condemn to a life without hope? Without the hope of salvation so that you could live a little without pain and sorrow. Who would you condemn for that? Could you make that decision? God did. He made that decision and he condemned his son. So the message of Christ is a message of hope. It is a message of forgiveness and restoration. It forces us to face our sin and to make a choice. To overcome or to submit, to live free or to live as slaves, to look at the broken world around us and see it as, as he does, that this is a world worth saving. He's not forcing you to submit. He's not forcing you to change. He's not trying to destroy you or anyone else. He wants everyone to come willingly, just as they are, with no conditions to have hope and forgiveness. I hope you stuck with me. If you're here today and you're angry at God, please don't blame Him for the sins of a broken world, for brokenness that we've created. He knows it hurts and He has a plan. He has a plan to give you something much greater than the pain that you feel. He loves you and He's waiting for you. What have you got to lose? Nothing. What have you got to gain? Everything. Maybe you're here today and you're a believer and that makes you my brother or my sister in Christ. I want to encourage you to take that next step in your walk with Jesus. Let the message of the gospel inspire you like it did the disciples. Wouldn't it be amazing to be so overwhelmed by something that you're willing to give everything you are to make others help others know about it? I'm not asking you to do anything big. I'm not asking you to become a missionary or a preacher or anything like that. If God's called you to do something like that, then do it. What I am asking you to do is ask yourself this. What is your next step? What is your next step? Why aren't you taking it? What are you waiting on? Take that step. Be inspired. Maybe you're here and you're staring into the reality of your sin because this message of Christ has brought conviction. You know you're broken. You know you're messed up. You know you can't fix it. You'll never be good enough. You'll never measure up. You know you, know you have no hope. You've come face to face with it. But I hope you've also come face to face with the reality of God's love for you because that's where the hope is found. Most of us in this room can quote John 3, 16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him, whoever believes in Him, will not perish, but have eternal life. That means you. It's a choice. But it's a choice that can change your world. It's a cho choice that can change your afterlife. It takes your sin and gives you forgiveness. It takes the brokenness and makes it whole. It takes the mess and makes you clean. It fills that missing piece in your life that you can't quite identify. Through Christ, you are good enough. Through Christ, you do measure up. And think about this. The creator of the universe sees you 
and thinks you are worth saving, will you let him? The creator of the universe sees you and wants you to take another step in your walk with him. Will you let him? The creator of the universe sees you and knows you're hurting. And he wants to help you. Will you let him? We're going to move into a time of taking the Lord's Supper. And after the Lord's Supper, we'll have a song. And that song will serve as both our, our celebration of the Lord's Supper and our invitation time. If God has called you to take a step, whatever that is, that'll be your time to do that. As the children coming in, I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians chapter 11, I'm going to read verses 27 through 28. It says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What Paul is instructing us here in 1 Corinthians is that before we partake of this, we need to examine our hearts and do business with God. So, as our deacons are preparing this, first I want all of the rest of us to bow our heads. Spend this time in silent prayer. Examine your hearts. And do business with God. Commit to him right now that if there's a decision to be made in your life that you're going to make it today.